Hello, and welcome to the Native Angelino Podcast. It is Wednesday, February 7, 2024. I received an email the other day asking why Native Angelino and why is the podcast hosted on the site 1929.live. Well, the Native Angelito piece is pretty simple. I grew up in Los Angeles, traveled, worked in a few different cities, but came back. So that's Native Angelino. But why 1929? Well, this podcast was first conceived, first recorded during the height of COVID, the early days of COVID, actually. And 1929 has quite a bit of historical significance. Stock market crash, the Great Depression, right? It was also the year that set the, the framework for all the growth that was to come in the U.S. economy over the ensuing decades. And frankly, it set the basis for the next 100 years to bring us here today. Also in 1929 was the birth of a man by the name of John Bogle. Born in May 1929, six months before the Great Crash on October 29th. John Bogle was born and he would go on to become a very important man. He would become very influential, very wealthy, a bit of a renegade, and a pioneer in an industry. Now, I've always had a penchant for stories, people, biographies of people that have overcome adversity. So in Bogle's case, he was born in 1929, tough family life, divorce, father became an alcoholic or so the story is told. He goes on to graduate from Princeton and, you know, all the details you can find, just go to the Wikipedia page. But in essence, what happens is he gets a great job after writing a, a you know, 100 plus page thesis, gets a great job, rises to the top, approves a merger, merger of two companies. It doesn't go well. He gets himself in trouble. Uh, loses respect, his job, and is unclear to me if he was actually barred by the industry or just by the, the firms and, and is no longer allowed, is barred, prohibited from managing other people's money. Now, his career had progressed and his field of study, experience and the like pushed him away from what we call the active management of money. In other words, you know, pick individual stocks and moved him towards an idea of lowering fees and what would become the index fund. Now, before we get there, think about what's going on. People make a lot of money managing other people's money. The fees are extensive for actively managed funds, although they've come down tremendously over the last years. But it's still, 
It was a very profitable industry uh, in Bogle's early career. And here's this young guy going through his career, five years, 10 years, couple of decades, and he's preaching the efficient market hypothesis, essentially, which says whether it's the weak form or the strong form, we can debate. But the efficient market hypothesis theory says that stock prices are accurate, or at least that all available information is already in the marketplace, and therefore the prices are correct. And many extrapolate from that to mean you can't beat the market. Now, this was what Vogel, excuse me, became famous for. He goes on to found the Vanguard Group in 1974. Although there are a few institutionally based products you know, over the next 20 years, it's not until 1993 that State Street launches the S&P 500 Trust, affectionately known as, and still today called, the Spiders. So it's an index fund, an ETF of the S&P 500. From that date in 1993 till today, you have roughly 12,000 ETFs. 12,000 bundles or groups of stock that can be traded as a group. Now, for purposes of our discussion, of those 12,000, we're really focusing on the passive funds or the close to passive funds. In other words, those that can offer the lowest fees and are in line with Bogle's thoughts of index funds, the efficient market hypothesis, and the like. 2024, the U.S. economy is roughly $28 trillion. The largest asset managers, the top five, top four or five, BlackRock, Vanguard, Fidelity, State Street, collectively manage an amount roughly equal to the entire U.S. economy. So this has become a monstrous industry. And I mentioned that Bogle was kind of a renegade. So over the years, he becomes more and more vocal to the public, more aggressive as his firm grows, and says to folks, look, you don't need a broker buy this passive investment, buy it and hold it. Don't worry when the market goes up or down, just stick with it and you're going to beat almost every money manager out there. And for not just the average investor, but for most investors, you're better off doing that. So let's accept this as true for this discussion. So let's get back to State Street. So State Street forms the S&P 500 spider, a group of all 500 stocks. Now, within those 500 stocks, there are different sectors, industrials, banks, 
real estate, you know, whatever the various sectors might be, technology, right? And they've sliced that S&P 500 into sector funds. And there are 11 sector funds, 11 sectors that make up the S&P 500. Now, today's guest has created an ETF of her own that utilizes these 11 sector funds and or the addition of a gold ETF and a fixed income or treasury bond interest rate based ETF to actively manage these low cost sector funds. The idea being we can do a little bit better than the marketplace, a little bit better than the S&P by favoring, by overweighting those sectors that look better based on her technical analysis, her methodology, favoring those sectors and underweighting the sectors that don't look as good vis-a-vis -vis the methods. And core to the strategy is an idea to manage this fund such that during the bad times, the drawdowns or the losses aren't as substantial as the straight S&P would experience. Now, what the results will be over the long run, to be determined. What I can say is that from my vantage point, it's a smart way to approach uh, investing from a long-term perspective with some active management, some technical analysis behind it, and keep cost at the low end of the range. Now, I, of course, have to insert the caveat, you know, and the statement, this isn't investment advice. You know, although I was involved in the markets for 25 years, you know, I can't give advice I wouldn't give advice at this point in my life. All I'm suggesting is it's an interesting methodology and, you know, I've taken a liking to it. So in this conversation that we get in today, I'm particularly interested because they just added the real estate sector on the positive side of the ledger. I've had a real estate license for something more than six years, launched the firm as I've become an actual broker, not just an agent. The firm is Native Angelino Real Estate. I'm particularly interested in real estate and the stock market in light of current events, news headlines, such as New York Community Bank, big write-offs, exposure to commercial real estate. Uh, we've all seen the headlines of vacancy rates in office towers being far above norm, you know, work from home has changed the dynamic, you know, these sorts of things, such that, you know, you ask questions, you wonder, is this the beginning of 2008 all over again? Will we be surprised if there are large bankruptcies and, you know, anything that remotely looks like 2008? Will we be surprised? Well, if you're a proponent of the efficient market hypothesis, you would say, no, you know, the real estate sector of the S&P 500 broadly is acting very well. The S&P 500 is at or close to 
all-time highs. Interest rates, let's say mortgage rates, which were in the twos during COVID, and over 8%, or roughly 8% a few months back, are now back in the six and a half, seven range. So what does that mean? You know, where are we? Residential housing, you know, prices over the last few years have, have really risen. There's no inventory, or many say there's no inventory. Things are slowing down. You know, what's really going on? I'll follow this up in a later written piece, and let's get into the discussion with Katie Stockton of Fairlead Funds right now. All right, it's Tuesday, February 6th. I'm happy to have Katie Stockton with us of Fairlead Strategies and the Fairlead Funds. Uh, Katie, welcome. Thank you so much, Tom. Nice to see you. Yes, yes, it's very nice to see Remotely. you as well. <laughs> yes, or at least speak with you. So we last chatted uh, formally on May 26th. So it was Memorial Day week or weekend of 2022. And I was looking back, the S&P was 4160 approximately. It had just bounced 10% off what we thought was an important level of 3815. Uh, West Texas crude was $118. Uh, gas, gasoline nationwide was $4.62. And in California, it was over $6.5 a gallon. Um, the key things that we were talking about at the time were inflation or stagflation, what was going to happen next. Uh, Ukraine was raging. COVID, uh, COVID was still happening, but not nearly as bad as it had been the year prior. So just to sort of set the stage, as you as you sit here today, before we talk about what you do and how you do it, just maybe your overview of right, 4160 then, where are we now, and just what's your general outlook from a technical perspective? It is remarkable, Tom, to kind of go back to like a little slice of time there and, and reflect on crude oil for one being at 118. It, it is wild, the movement between here and there, and a lot of volatility, both on the downside and on the upside. I, I do feel that, you know, for much of that time since we talked, the market has been trending higher. And of course, that's gotten us from that 4160 area to now about 49.35 for the S&P 500. And it's a bull market cycle that we're benefiting from. The, the bear market cycle of 2022, um, you know, it culminated towards the end of the year. We've seen a bull market cycle emerge from a low in late 2022, and it's been you know two different, very different environments really to navigate from a technical perspective. Crude oil prices are are not halved from where they were, but but nearly that, which is pretty amazing to say. Even though when you look at the chart of crude oil, it, it's really more range bound, more neutral long term. Uh, but we do have essentially all-time highs having been registered by the major indices that, that focus around large caps. And in Q4 of last year, 2023, we saw breath improve. So that was really meaningful in that it was a year that was characterized largely by very narrow leadership from the mega cap complex, very widely publicized, of course. But in so Q4, that, that did shift, and we saw a rotation that started to favor 
different areas of the market. So the mega caps still did fine, if, if not outperform, uh, but also we saw small caps and mid caps kick in to some degree. We also saw new sectors and new stocks start to really um, you know, break out on their charts. And that was a differentiating factor and I think sets us up really nicely for 2024. So what, what I'd like to do is stop right here and before we get deeper into those sectors, just a quick recap of how you look at the marketplace generally and your from a, a technical perspective and your discipline specifically. And then I want to hear about the, the ETF that you launched and talk about the growth of that. And then with your permission, we'll talk about the recent addition of a, the, the real estate sector and talk about my specific interests since, as you know, I've, I've relaunched Native Angelino Real Estate. So I have a direct interest in whether the marketplace for real estate is going to be up, down, what interest rates are going to do, uh, and obviously the effect on the banks. So uh, again, if you wouldn't mind, just talk a bit about your discipline and let's talk about the launch of the, the product. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that, Tom. So I, I'm essentially a technical analyst. And, and what that means is that I analyze stock markets by prices using trends and in, in prices. So for any security, whether it's a stock or a bond or a commodity, uh, you name it, uh, as long as it has a price and a, a trend, we can analyze it and have an opinion on it. So we're not digging into, say, the company's fundamentals for a stock, or, nor the macro backdrop for a different currency. We're truly just looking at charts for our takeaways. The methodology uses a combination of technical indicators, things that are designed to measure price momentum, also support and resistance levels. Those are areas of potential buying and selling pressure overbought, oversold indications, essentially there to help us understand if something's overdone on the upside or downside. And a lot of relative strength work, meaning looking typically for us, we're looking at sectors versus the broader equity market. But you can use relative strength to really analyze any kind of factors in the marketplace. So that's where we spend our time. And it's it's all based on market sentiment and behavioral elements, because all of the information out there that we have to absorb as investors does really boil down into buy and sell decisions, which of course then manifest themselves in price. So it's price-based analysis that we do. It gets pretty mathematical. And in that sense, I think people tend to value it for its ability to take out some of the emotion. You really can't argue with a momentum buy signal or sell signal, perhaps from a moving average crossover or something of that nature. You can um, obviously overrule it, um, but you, you can't really argue against some of the signals that we have. So um, we take all of this information and we boil it down into conclusions um, that are not necessarily ultra predictive, but designed to help investors and our clients manage risk, discover opportunities, and to generally stay on the right side of the markets. And, and that's by using our, our trend following tools and things of that nature. In 2022, as you alluded to, we um, did launch a product and this is our first investable product from Fairlead Strategies, which I founded in 2018. The product is called the Fairlead Tactical Sector ETF. And it is essentially a sector rotation vehicle using technical analysis. It's very long-term in focus, and it has the ability to 
manage risk through equity market drawdowns by moving into other asset classes, asset classes that over history tend to do better than the S&P 500, as an example, during a bear market cycle. So in 2022, of course, being a bear market cycle, it was an interesting environment in which to launch a product. But thankfully, uh, the ETF, which the ticker is TAC or T-A-C-K, proved its muster in that type of environment by reducing the drawdowns or, or limiting them in it, what was a very weak tape. So it showed its ability to outperform in that type of environment. And when you can outperform and uh, sort of limit those drawdowns, for a long-term investor who's inclined towards a kind of a buy and hold type of strategy, it helps set them up at a, a higher uh, sort of place to rebound, right? They don't get too deep into the holes of the bear market cycles, like say a 20 um, or 2008. And, uh, you know, that that's the design. And, and by not going, you know, through those cycles to a full degree and, and moving in a, into a combination of short-term treasuries, long-term treasuries and gold, uh, we can, you know, position ourselves better to leverage long-term upside in the market and, and even outperform the major Understood. indices over time. So let me stop you there for a second, just mm-hmm. recap the basics. So is it is it fair to say that your discipline works on a basis of a belief, an assumption that full information is in the marketplace? Well, yeah, I mean, it is, it really is, right? Because everything boils down into a decision. So we're in the same way that most folks that are trying to analyze um, stocks, say from a fundamental perspective, they're using historical data to guide them. We're doing the same thing. And our assumption is actually that trends will sustain themselves in general. So we wanna stay on the right side of those trends and and measure them in terms of their momentum and and Mm -hmm. whether they're, uh, you know, getting overdone by historical metrics. So it, it's so, so within reason. There's an there's an assumption of an efficient market, and information is is there, and it's discovered via the charts, via the price movement, and the like that you look at. Yeah, I mean, the market yeah. is in a way efficient, but that doesn't mean you cannot uh, sort of add value by you know watching these momentum indicators and trying to make sure that you have probabilities in your favor and this right. is where there's a, a big debate of course over the efficient market hypothesis but what we're trying to do is is really help people manage risk and know when these trends change and and change with them so we so, uh, it's funny as a strategist you know people tend to ask me well where do you think the S&P 500 will be at year end and i honestly have no idea. I can make, uh, you know, sort of a prediction based on what I know about the markets at, at present, right? Um, and I, I can maybe do that with some advantage to someone that doesn't have the tools that I have. Um, but I would reserve the right to change my mind if the market yeah, changes yeah. its direction, which I, I certainly I can't control as much as I would like to. So what what you've done is create a very low cost way of you put, you put together an ETF based on sector spiders, the S&P sectors, and it's a low cost way for folks to uh, invest in the market with a risk reduction or a, a drawdown protection. In other words, lose less when things get ugly. And you, you manage the balance of how long, how much your long exposure is. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that. And 
then perhaps talk about the addition of, of the real estate sector, but uh, I, I'm going to chat for just one more second here and ask you, when we spoke in May of 22, you had about 100 million in assets, and I know you've had really good growth since then, and you're what, 250-ish or something like that now? We're around 210 right now. Okay, 210, so you've doubled, and congratulations. Thank you. And you have been added to some of the retail warehouse platforms, correct? Wells Fargo and, and UBS? That's right. So, so folks that have money that's being managed uh, by, by brokers there, uh, it's a little bit easier and we can get into that offline if, if need be, but that uh, will help your distribution and the like. So what I, what I want to ask you about before we get into the actual sector strategy is, uh, you've been at this for more than 20 years and your focus initially, I believe, was more institutionally fo uh, directed, mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. And you've evolved. So maybe just talk for a minute about institutional to the product now that which is clearly used by family office and institutions. But does your approach have to change as you as you direct towards the retail or the managed money uh, element yeah, you know, or not? Yeah, it, it, in a way it does, but in a way it also doesn't. We we did start fairly strategies in part to service a more retail audience because technical analysis can be used by anyone, really. And it, it's a pretty accessible discipline in terms of, especially now that we have access to charts and data that's, you know, through technology that that's so easy and, and widespread. So it's an accessible discipline. It's something that anybody can pick up and do a little research and benefit from. So we wanted to bring it from Wall Street alone to then Main Street with our research. We, we didn't, you know, really change the nature of the research between uh, when we were institutionally focused and now where we're uh, sort of more broadly uh, focused than that. So this is a professional's product. It is. Methodology yeah. that's now packaged for the for any investor, frankly, to for to any investor. So yeah, from. we still we still provide to both institutions and uh, you know family offices, retail investment advisors. Um, so anybody that can benefit from technical analysis, it can certainly find value in our research product. And then the investable product being an ETF, that's also a very like low barrier to entry type of product, right? You don't have to go fill out a big form to buy it. You, you don't need to sign anything. It's traded on the NYSE and therein is, is widely accessible to just about anyone. There's no minimums or anything of that nature. So it's a great product for retail, uh, but certainly a very good product for institutions as well because of the low costs associated with it. So the, so the expense ratios are very low since you're using sector versus, spiders and then yeah. your group has a, a very low management fee on top of that. Relatively. That's right. Cer certainly by comparison to any private funds. And, you know, uh, we, we feel that we're giving um, investors this actively managed product that has the basis in systematic technical analysis, which is, is quite rare out there as a, an ETF wrapper. An ETF wrapper um, also has an inherent benefit in terms of tax treatment because the mutual funds that you've seen a big sort of um, migration mutual fund to ETF structure because in part the mutual funds would 
passed through some capital gains, even in bad years at times. So uh, that became frustrating, I think, to some end users. And, and the ETF structure is such that that doesn't necessarily happen. So we can trade the sector spider funds, which is how we're expressing those sector views. It's essentially an ETF of ETFs. And we can trade those funds in a way um, that really couldn't be done without pretty significant tax and taxable events, right, um, individually. So we can do that. And then the investor, the end user of tech would essentially just, you know, have their taxable event when they trade out of the fund. But our goal is for it to be, I'd say, like an alternative to the buy and hold strategy, almost a dynamic version where they can, you know, feel, you know, somewhat confident that we can limit drawdowns through that asset allocation. And it's something that's also um, somewhat digestible in terms of the strategy. It's not some sophisticated options strategy that's hard to understand, but something that that people are generally trying to do themselves in their own portfolio by having some kind of 60-40 type of uh, balance between equities and fixed income. We have something that ends up actually after like in our back testing, you know, 20 years plus something that might look like 65, 35 equities to fixed income um, with the, the gold um, piece to that as well. Right. So, so let's um, talk about how that's accomplished there. How many sector funds and what are the considered the risk off pieces? So what you've got is the, the S&P broken up into its various sectors. Then you also have gold and an interest rate component. Is that right? And mm-hmm, that's maybe right. talk Sweet. for a second about how that works and then maybe where your position now and then adding the most recent uh, Real estate. Yeah, for sure. And it it is exciting when we sort of move into new sectors. So I'm glad we're talking right now, Tom. I, you know, we we start with the 11 essentially major economic sectors of the market that are offered through these sector spider products, which not only are are low price, they actually just reduced their price just uh, very recently by another bit. So they're very, um, you know, easy to trade, very liquid products. We have 11 sectors that we're running through our model and evaluating for characteristics that are primarily cent- centered around long-term momentum, right? We want to have that long-term momentum on our side in our positioning. So for much of 2023, we kind of m- morphed into from like almost a fully risk-off type of portfolio, we started to move into the leading sectors of the market. And and for most of that year, it was technology, communication services, and consumer discretionary. And guess what? Those are also not accidentally uh, the mega cap heavy sectors of the market, right? So we had that exposure. We also still had some uh, substantial position in what we're calling the risk off piece of the portfolio, which is a combination, not exactly one third, one third, one third at all times, but a combination of short-term treasuries, essentially the one to three year treasury bonds, uh, one to three years, and then the, the long-term treasury piece as well, and uh, gold. And gold is achieved through the gold mini shares or GLDM. So those views are expressed through ETFs as well. So effectively, we're taking the 11 sector spider ETFs and then three ETFs for those treasury exposures and then the gold piece for 14 ETFs that we choose as uh, or have as our investable universe. And now we've seen with the improvement in market breadth, and that of course benefited not just more stocks, but more sectors of the market, we've seen tech morph into more sectors, right? So we still have those leading sectors of the market, which have still really done very well. 
but we've morphed into the financial sector, the industrial sector, and then also, as you cited most recently, the real estate sector. So this is our, our brand new uh, sort of addition as of the last few days, and we're in February right now. And um, it, we're excited about it because we do think that there's, I'd call it signs of life for the real estate sector of, of the equity market from a technical perspective. So let, let's talk about that. What what did you see that suggests signs of life? I, I know it's stock action, but maybe we can talk about that. And as, as the backdrop from where I sit, I, I look at it and think in, 20, in May of 22 when we spoke, the housing market was seeing weakness because mortgage rates had just risen above 5%. Mm-hmm. Now we're at 7%, but down from 8 So there, there's a perception now that things are improving as rates have gone from 8 to 7 uh, and I guess the stocks are acting better. Is that what, uh, is that what you're saying? Yeah, and I mean, the, the stocks are benefiting from, the, you know, kind of the rising tide, right? So it, it's that breath that's certainly been there to give um, sectors, even ones that had been downtrending as much and underperforming as much, quite honestly, as the real estate sector. They're, they're getting a boost from that improved market breath. So the top-down influences as of Q4 last year have been better. Um, and not just better for real estate, but obviously financials and industrials too. So so the primary reason for us adding real estate is the momentum shift. And that momentum shift is to the upside for benchmarks like the XLRE ETF that we're using for that exposure. But at the same time, there is a, um, we'd call it almost like a macro technical rationale for it in that we have, while the REITs have picked up their momentum, effectively turned the corner and showed some signs of life in relative terms as well in Q4, that is the best performing sector of the S&P 500 for for that surge off the lows. You know, we're also seeing yields, treasury yields, come off uh, their high. So the 10-year treasury yield, uh, you know, peaked uh, around 5% uh, late last year and now trading closer to 4.1 or so. And at the same time, we saw mortgage rates peak and come off of their highs. And and the corrective action in yields and mortgage rates has influenced our long-term indicators. So it was enough of a move to influence these long-term indicators, which are generally designed to minimize some of the noise out there and make sure that we're, we're um, there for these big shifts, not just for the corrective phases. So it's treating this as a big shift, meaning that the REIT sector, real estate stocks, um, and things that are related to it probably bottomed, saw a major bottom in October of last year. And that also would suggest that we have a major peak in yields and mortgage rates. And so our our belief there is that we'll see yields come off for even most of this year, if not longer, based primarily on that momentum shift. Okay, so with an improving technical outlook uh, with a macro overlay, let's call it, that that might explain things. How do we address a question of, you know, a week or so back when one or two of the regional or the regional banking sector got hammered pretty good as there was uh, loan loss reserve questions and and really the the bigger thought of, oh, vacancy rates in commercial real estate are very high. There's some hidden time bombs, this sort of thing. 
how does that line up? Now, I realize the sector ETF is much broader and has industrial and healthcare and other sorts of REITs, but a, I'm not saying it's 2008 all over again, but just within that sort of mindset, if there's a big ticking time bomb out there, how are we going to see it reflected? And it seems contrary to the move we're seeing in the sector, as you've described. Yeah, and, and listen, like we um, hear a lot about that too, and I, I wouldn't argue against any of the risks that are there um, on that front. The charts just aren't showing it though right now. So there are times at which the market, um, you know, sort of gets disjointed, I would say, from the fundamentals of a company or of a real estate investment trust, or they even can, the market can get disjointed from what you could perceive as a major macro headwind, right? And I think the Fed is probably the most obvious <laughs> influencer on that front. I mean, it's pretty remarkable, um, you know, to see, um, you know, the chatter around the yield curve inversion and things of this nature. What, what tends to happen um, is that the lead times for some of these macro events can be so long duration that you can have full market cycles before they really take their toll. So what we're trying to do as technical analysts is to identify, you know, not not only what kind of environment we're in, which our indicators are suggesting that it's a bull market cycle, uh, but also to know when it's shifting and when that shift is meaningful, more than just a corrective phase. So at this point, with the regional bank sector, with also the REIT sector or real estate, we have seen momentum go from being really pretty strongly to the downside, perhaps aligned with those risks. But now uh, we've seen short-term breakouts and improved long-term momentum. So we're actually coming out of a bear market cycle, in our opinion, uh, for, for financials and real estate. And that's something that we want to take advantage of on the long side until the market proves us otherwise. And that would be something that would manifest itself in I, the opposite of, of what we're seeing, which is breakdowns and weakened momentum characteristics. So it just is probably like a disjointed time frame that we're talking about here, where the influences you're talking about, you know, there are certainly risks, uh, but they may not take their toll on the market, uh, you know, anytime soon, or maybe they already did, depending on, um, you know, what you're looking at. Right. So just as, as a way of how somebody might use this this product in their portfolio so you have a a again a logic that's putting forth the, the relative strength and you are adjusting amongst those sectors to the strongest of the strong mm -hmm. and uh you know balancing with the treasury and the gold on the other side as your as your risk off component Let, let's say that somebody said you know what i i agree with everything that uh that fairly to saying, and I look at the real estate sector and also the financial sector, and I said, yeah, I agree, there's, there's strength because these are diversified broad bases. But I happen to believe that I don't, regional banks are going to suffer dramatic loss because this, this will happen, but the overall economy is strong. So the overlay that somebody might do in this case was they might be short regional banks Mm -hmm. as part of a portfolio mm -hmm. and you know pick up that view of the world and yet still benefit from the fun the technical work that you've done that shows strength in other pieces of financials and real estate broadly right and and our etf it will not be short 
any sector ever. It's a it's a basically a long only ETF product, but it will treat um, the sectors that have that weak momentum as a no invest. It's basically just not going to make it into the portfolio. Um, so so those sectors that have the downtrends, that have the weak momentum, that have the weak relative performance. Uh, from a long-term perspective, won't make the cut. So we just won't be there for that, Understood. ideally, right? Uh, you know, you, you can't make any promises, but we're respecting the indicators and, uh, you know, letting them guide us. And then when they change, which you can certainly see whipsaws happen. It's not unheard of to have whipsaws. It's a lot less common in the time frame that we're analyzing. So we're using month-end closing data to make our changes. So those monthly um Closing prints, you know, the, it's it's more meaningful, of course, than getting caught up in, uh, you know, the daily data. So we, we found that in terms of, you know, looking over history, using those month end, um, you know, data points actually really helped eliminate a lot of the noise. And it still added the same level of value without all the headaches of the extra trading and, um, you know, all the taxable implications and what have you, it would basically smoothed out your process while still letting it be dynamic. Um, we found that our, our turnover is something close to 100% a year. So so it is dynamic in that you're, you're getting that rotation. So if regional banks were enough of an influence on XLF to the downside, they've actually done all right, in our opinion, that they've been stair-stepping higher since uh, about May of 23, if something changed there and it was enough to influence XLF in a way that the indicators that we track started to deteriorate, it'd just get kicked out of the portfolio. And if its bucket wasn't filled by another sector, um, then we would divide that bucket between right. the risk-off categories. And, and again, the perhaps the example I used just because I wanted to focus on real estate isn't fully consistent with what we're talking about, but because really what you're doing is optimizing around the, the broad market for long-term investors uh, with some short-term influence, but you're really, uh, the, the goal is to outperform over the long run. Yes. Yeah, so we want right. to, right, not just preserve capital, but obviously grow capital. And we want to do that through that asset allocation piece by limiting the drawdowns, but also by making sure that we're finding the sectors that are most additive over over the course of you know a bull market cycle. So, and then you know, listen, when we don't have a bull market cycle, then that that's when we will be very comfortable having much less equity exposure. But in a, a bull cycle like we have right now. We have now six sectors that we're exposed to, which leaves a, a much smaller piece for that risk-off component. And those six sectors, our models are treating as you know the best sectors of the market. So that's that's the potential for outperformance is by being exposed to those sectors and and at the same time not being exposed right to the sectors like energy for one, which are out of favor. And so, and the regional banks, listen, they're, they're still, you know, not out of the woods yet, I would say, in terms of relative performance, but they are, they've been stable in relative strength terms uh, since the middle of last year. And at the same time, we've seen them stair step higher. So, so, so again, the idea is to outperform rather than just buy an S&P 500 ETF, you know, we're going to put a little intelligence around that and outperform on the upside in the long run, and in the bad years, lose less. 
so that, that over the long yeah, run, that, that is that's the theory. But over <laughs> over the longer run, one should benefit, and a little bit goes a long way with compounding. Well, and it, it, yeah, and listen, like you know, we're conservative in how we approach markets. We we do believe that the charts are a great way to just keep you on the right side of things and to help you manage risk. And that's really the goal of TAC is to help manage risk, and, but also, you know, benefit from positive trends and relative strength. So so it's really very aligned with our sort of philosophical view of how to invest in, in markets. And, um, you know, the, to have something that is so low priced that it's also dynamic, um, you know, that that's a real benefit too. It's something that we couldn't have done you know, even 10 years ago, probably. So it's it's an exciting sort of format to be able to offer this type of strategy in. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, our day job, though, of course, is, is it's probably not as long term as we'd like to be. We're really um, in the weeds, I'd say, in the markets, even very, very short term. We're publishing on the markets on a daily basis. But, uh, you know, by by watching the markets as closely as we do for our research and for our consulting uh, clients, we are, you know, we'll see things, you know, that are unfolding from a long-term perspective as well. So we, we can give that market color that is short-term, but still have our context, right, within which we're operating. I always tell people our first look is at a monthly bar chart, and that's where we're getting our bias, right? Then the weekly will tell us what the uh, sort of prevailing intermediate-term trend is. And that's the trend that we want to make sure we're staying on the right side of. And then the daily chart is great for helping you time the market. And by that, I mean just making sure that you're adding exposure at a time that's conducive to positive momentum. Like we like to add exposure when a stock has a breakout because that tends to be something that generates additional momentum. You know, people would be happy to see new highs, say, from Meta. And uh, that generates momentum. And then also when a pullback becomes oversold, and if that pullback becomes oversold near a support level, that can be a great um, market timing sort of indication as well. So as an example, everyone seems you know, worried about small caps right now, and, and I understand where that comes from. But we feel that you know it's an orderly pullback, and we can say that because of the support level being intact. And because of, of where we think it will become oversold. So we're looking for on the daily chart that sort of oversold entry point to manifest itself in our indicators. And um, and so that's how we're using the multiple time frames to our benefit because for small caps, just like any of these sectors that have turned the corner, that breath has really enhanced um, you know their charts. So we've seen them emerge from trading ranges because much of them spent 2023 really range bound, not participating in what the mega caps were, um, you know, driving behind the major indices. So those breakouts to us are something that makes for a a much, not a, not a, I'd say better year in a way, right, for, for folks, because it's a little bit easier to take advantage of when you have more things participating. So, so the breakouts and the breakdowns now, you're offering a subscription service for this sort of research, right? Single stock sector and more shorter term that's available through the through the same website? Yeah, so we have, uh, and thanks for asking, Tom, you're always a good supporter. I, I, I use it. it and I've used it for 20 years, but I, I, I look at it a little bit differently. So <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wanna make sure that people understand that yeah, no, the, the um, ETF so- is, 
is available and growing, but there is a, a specific technical service. In yeah, our, our our day job is still you know doing technical research and, and publishing that, and we have a couple different outlets for that. But the easiest way to access it is through our website via a free trial, and then we typically take an email and send out research to um, an email. And um, you can just go to fairleadstrategies.com and sign up for the research trial there and see what kind of methodology we're using. And we, we are very consistent in our methodology. So while there's a little bit of a learning curve, I think uh, folks really define themselves in a way educated by the research, right? So that they can make decisions on their own that are, are better informed from a technical perspective. And then they have also the episodic views of the market. They have also from us ideas that are, are giving them opportunities to, you know, build exposure to things that have good momentum or have breakouts or have relative strength. And and we are, we're not afraid of putting out short ideas. That's, that's a benefit of being a technical analyst. We, we are just as happy to, um, you know, ride the market on, on the downdrafts as we are on the upswings. So we, we don't and have that And I didn't mean bias. to lean to the, to the short side. It was just because of the financials. I mean, I guess I could have said it another way uh, for somebody who wants to be involved in NVIDIA and Facebook and, and some of the go-go tech names or whatever's hot at the time, which if there's been a lot of performance there, one can own this and then still own the individual stocks or another ETF that's tech focused and be long the whole way through. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and know, one the, does not I mean, have to be a short seller to. <laughs> no, I, and I have right now. I see somebody just um, pinged me. They say, is there a sell signal in NVIDIA? <laughs> so this is the kind of thing that we field all day. Um, so we're always looking for counter trend indications to help people manage risk. We believe, um, you know, while TAC is a, a really good core equity portfolio or, you know, core portfolio, we also believe in when the market's really strong to have supplemental um, positions in the technology sector, primarily because the tech sector is such a huge footprint in the S&P 500. And it's where you often find uh, beta or the ability to outperform on updates. So, so we love the idea of having, you know, tech and a, a strong tape with supplemental positions in the likes of NVIDIA or in the likes of, um, you know, Monday.com, that type of, of thing where we can supplement a core equity, you know, portfolio with individual stock positions. So if I may, let me take you back to the real estate and financials discussion. So I presume I'm a an institutional money manager or I'm a fam, individual family office and I come to you with this bias that says, Yes, I know interest rates have improved of late and the overall trends, I agree with you. I see what uh, what your work shows, but I really am worried about the commercial sector because of office vacancy rates. Uh, what should I do, Katie? How do you well, look at things? I mean, the, what would the be first the incremental knowledge? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I go to is, is diversify, right? Um, obviously, you can... And diversify away from that exposure. Um, we're doing it from a technical perspective, where you know by default we'll have some of that commercial exposure, but it it, it is pretty diluted when I look at the components of the ETF that we're trading to represent the real estate sector. Um, we see the same thing, by the way. We're in Greenwich, Connecticut, at our headquarters, and we see the same you know vacancies popping up here and there, and some of these spaces are huge. I even had a real estate agent reach out to me today saying, oh, well, this space is still available, but we've been in our space now for a few months. 
So I, I see that happening. But again, there's that kind of lead lag time, right? So so at times that that takes a while to trickle into those individual positions. So I think that the best way to manage that risk truly is by taking your positions um, and uh, making sure to have an overlay for the momentum behind them. And when you see a major sell signal, um, then by all means react to that, right? So, so it is a somewhat reactive way of approaching it. So rather than anticipating the turnaround and missing what is still a bull cycle for some of these names, you know, wait for that momentum shift to be there and to look meaningful. One way we do that is through a, a very common technical indicator. It's called the MACD or MACD, and it stands for Moving Average Convergence Divergence. Sounds fancy, but it's really quite simple. It's a spread between two exponential moving averages of price, and it's measuring the trend and um, isolating these important shifts through crossovers with a signal line. Uh, you can access that indicator very easily, um, typically even through you know a brokerage platform. And you can track the MACD over different time frames. So let's say you're a long-term investor, you might use the monthly MACD indicator and just make sure that it's on your side, make sure that it's on a buy signal uh, when you have overweight exposure. And let's say if it were to flip to a sell signal, which is, um, it's a binary indicator, well then you might consider reducing, especially if you feel concerned about those risks. And it, the, the daily work that you publish will pick up these breakdowns, shall we say. Yeah, uh, if, yeah. If my financial thesis is correct or my, it, we would pick it up and we it will pick it up with the lag yeah so there there are listen like we're no better than the next guy i guess um in terms of identifying inflection points in real time our indicators do take time to shift so so we'll have a lag to those big shifts right we, we won't necessarily say okay well you know here's our peak it's happening right this minute Sometimes we, we get lucky, I guess, in that regard, but um, we, we really, I'd say most of our indicators have an inherent lag to them, but it's by design. It's, it's to make sure that we're not getting caught up in just the noise. So mm -hmm. uh, we want to make sure that we're identifying key shifts and, and avoiding big bear cycles as opposed to, you know, even the COVID corrective phase, by the way, you know, wasn't treated by our indicators as a big bear cycle because it was so short lived and ultimately became a really good, very good buying opportunity. So we want to make sure we don't, you know, go away in that kind of environment entirely. Um, so these indicators, while they have a lag, that lag is something um, that is thereby designed to re reduce some of the noise inherent to the marketplace. And now more than ever, I feel like we have such volatility um, you know, in the market where you can see, you know, one year up 50%, the next year down 30, you know, it's really, um, it's been pretty wild to see something, um, you know, and I think maybe it's ETFs themselves that actually have exacerbated some of the moves that we're seeing now in individual stocks. Uh, so would you even, say that's the biggest yeah. change over the last 20 years, the, the ETFs and the ability to move the the speed at which one can buy and sell individual stocks or packages and and quant driven things would that be the biggest change do you think i yeah i definitely think the market structure element right where the you know going to pennies and things like that um those are those are probably you know the biggest change um you know for institutions right 
But for trends, um, you know, by all means, derivatives products and exchange traded funds, things of that nature have been a massive influence and they'll exacerbate moves and or mask moves because now volume just isn't as important anymore. So that's been probably the biggest change, but we haven't changed the way we analyze things because of that, because the indicators, while maybe the extremes get more extreme, we still use the same types of signals because we find them valuable. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's all we have, right? That the market just offers us really two yes. data points, which is price and volume. So um, we're just working with what, what the market's giving us. So with our last few minutes, our last segment here, how would you like to grow the fund group? Or do you want to have a fund group, I guess I should ask? Um, It'd be great to have, you know, the the fair lead family of funds, I would say, you know, we want to make sure that we have, you know, a really good foundation intact before we, you know, explore other products. But the, the systems that we've built and the methodology that we adhere to really lends itself very well to other, you know, asset classes, for example. Um, so, so it's a really a very transferable type of, of model or strategy. Where, where would you go next? Oh, I don't know. That's classified, Tom. <laughs> I figured. So let me ask it another way. How tough is it to get an ETF approved? To go through, you know, from the, the regulatory side, I, not at the Well, so that's side. funny because I think it really depends on, um, you know, the, the composure of the ETF because ours is, is really pretty simple in terms of its composure. We're using It's 14. unlevered. Yeah. unlevered 14 highly liquid um, funds that are mostly 40 act funds outside of the the gold exposure um, so for for our ETF it, it was I'd say relatively seamless um, the, the harder part with ETFs is of course distribution which you alluded to and, and that's something that um, you know we're just having to navigate and learn as we go um, but but for a strategy that's highly sophisticated with options um, or you know individual stocks that are very small or illiquid instruments, well then that's going to naturally be harder, um, a bigger barrier to entry. Is it a good business to be in from your standpoint? Um, we we hope it will be. Yes. <laughs> no, it's been great. Listen, it, we've learned a ton as we've gone along. There's been positive surprises and and. The biggest positive um, has, of course, just been uptake in, in terms of the AUM and the strategy. Uh, that that shows that people agree that this is a good way to approach the market. Um, you know, but there's the, the ups and downs are always there with a the small business. I mean, it's it's a very expensive product to launch. Um, so I think our surprise on the downside has certainly been the cost of it and um, and the challenges around distribution. But but we're navigating those fairly well. So I've wanted to ask you a question. So you use the term navigating, and the the symbol is tack as in tactical. But I've wondered, is that really related to sailing? (laughs) It is, Tom. And you know, you probably know, at least from our days, our mutual days in San Francisco, I I did a lot of sailboat racing out there, and it's such a a great place to do it. It's really kind of world-class in terms of sailing. 
And um, and yet, it, boy, I mean, if it doesn't relate to markets, I don't know what does. I mean, navigating and tactical. Uh, there's actually a tactician on the sailboats during regattas, typically, and, and the tactician is the one who's essentially deciding when to turn or tack the boat. So, um, you know, this is this is what we see, uh, you know, our role as uh, in terms of navigating the markets and helping people do that in a, you know, in a way that that just puts, you know, the the wind at their back. Right. Um, so it, there's definitely some su- subtle nautical ref- references on our website, too. You'll see that with Fairlead. Fairlead's a, a part on a boat. Um, so Fairlead's the it almost looks like a little cleat, sort of an eyelet hole mm-hmm. uh, through which you guide the line just to keep it from getting tangled. Were you very competitive as a sailor? or are No, you? Are you, no way. <laughs> That's not my nature, Tom. You know this about me. Uh, I, but, but I, I hung mm-hmm. out with a lot of people who were very competitive. So I, I like to be part of a winning team, um, but I'm really the person that's, you know, <laughs> that that person driving the boat and, you know, screaming at others, but it, it is exciting. I mean, it's really um, fantastic when you when you have such a big breeze as you do in San Francisco. And now in Connecticut, there's a lot of, uh, you know, options to get out there too. So I should have this uh, episode up in the next day or two at most. Do you have any television, CNBC, or anything like that planned in the near term, or where, or conferences, or where will people see you next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I do have a conference this weekend. It's um, so on. It's called Exchange ETF. They call it just Exchange. I think they're trying to get away from it being perceived as ETF-specific necessarily, but it really is an ETF-focused uh, conference. And so on Sunday, I do a talk about basically building portfolios of ETFs, right? So more of like an educational version of our conversation. Um, and so that's, the, it'll be thousands of people down in Miami. So hopefully the weather, hopefully the, yeah, hopefully the weather will cooperate for us. Yeah, I don't have CNBC, I don't think on my calendar for the next week or so. Yeah, well, I saw you on Fast Money a week or so back, good interview. I think those folks are uh, very smart market professionals, as a matter of fact. Anyway, Katie, thank you again for your time. Let's check in in a quarter or so, and uh, we'll hear how your perspective has changed at that point. Continued success, and I'll look forward to talking to you again. Take good care, Katie. 